Hello, everybody. It is good to be back in the state of New Jersey. Who would ever thought I'd say something like that? Here I am. It is wonderful to be back in the state of New Jersey. I had a wonderful time with my little sister in London, England for a week. She was presenting some science research where she's doing, uh, that, she's doing that she's been doing at Stanford University. She's a rock star, sophomore in college, presenting her own research. She's doing wonderful things. And Big Bro just came along to make sure that she was good and to relax. And I was literally just doing whatever I wanted to do while she was off, you know, changing the world. It was great. Um, it was wonderful to be back here with you all this morning, my church family. Before we get into our time of teaching this morning, we thought it would be good and necessary, quite frankly, to acknowledge the hate crimes that's been happening the last week. There was the fatal shooting in Buffalo, New York, where a gunman came to a black neighborhood and just gunned down people in a supermarket. And there was also a fatal shooting in uh, Southern California. There was a gunman that came to a Taiwanese American church um, and just shot and, and murdered one person and wounded five more. Both of these crimes were aimed at a particular group, right? And it's during these kinds of times where, where we can feel lost, feel confused, and just feel just utterly disoriented, right? Because senseless acts of violence can just make us feel a range of emotions. So this morning, we wanted to take all of these emotions to God and really put it at the feet of our Savior. So to start us off, I'm going to read a psalm, Psalm 64, 1 through 6. Uh, it's a psalm of David, and then, I'm going to go in, and then I'm going to pray over us, and then we'll transition into our time of teaching. Here's what David says in this psalm. Hear me, my God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. They sharpen their tongues like swords and aim cruel words like deadly arrows. They shoot from ambush at the innocent. They shoot suddenly without fear. They encourage each other in evil plans. They talk about hiding in their, in their snares. They say, who will see it? They plot injustice and say, we have devised a perfect plan. Surely the human mind and heart are cunning. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we come to you this morning saddened by everything that's been happening in our country. God, we come to you this morning knowing that our hope is not found in a political power, in a political party, or in any particular kind of politician. Our hope, God, is found in you. We know that the ultimate solution to everything happening in this country, in our lives, is found in your wisdom, your gospel, your truth. So what our prayer this morning is that your truth, your wisdom, infiltrate every system in this country, every person in this country, quite frankly, so that we can live in a more safe, in a more just society. God, we know that you want this. We know that you will this. And we come to you right now, God, looking for guidance, looking for wisdom, looking for answers. And we know, Lord, that we can find all these things in you and you alone. So in this moment, God, I pray that we don't turn to anyone but you. We don't pray to anything. We don't, we don't turn to anything else but you. Because you, God, are our Savior. You, God, are our counselor. And you, God, 
know exactly what we need to be healed, to be transformed, and to be set free. So God, we pray for the families of both of those fatal attacks. God, I pray right now that you send your children to them and that, and that they can experience your love, your grace, and your peace through your church. And I pray for every family and every, and every person in this church, God. I pray that as we, as, as, as we live in our communities, live in our workplaces, that you teach us how to love our neighbor so that we can carry out your love. And that when people see us, they know what the opposite of hate is. So God, we thank you in advance for what you're doing through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. All right, we are going to continue on in our Philippians series. I'm going to really miss that bump video in our next series. That's going to be like a sad ending, right? It's going to be like, damn, what am I, what am I going to bop to at church? You know what I'm saying? So that's going to be kind of sad. But hopefully the next one will be even better. So, we're going, so this morning we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to go from verse 17 all the way through 4. 1 through 3. So Philippians 3, 17, all the way through 4, verses 1 through 3. This is what the word of the Lord says. Paul says, brothers, join me and join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Just for a few moments of your time this morning, I want to tag this text, keep going. Keep going. As I was reading this text this, this, this week, church, I was reminded of the late, great Kobe Bryant. The story is often told of Kobe Bryant, church, that he was obsessed with the game of Michael Jordan, right? And he was so obsessed with Michael Jordan. Get this, there will be times where Kobe would invite a girl over for a date. You know what they would do? They would watch game film of Michael Jordan. Isn't that crazy? That's, that sounds awful, right? But to Kobe, he could not miss a moment where he had to emulate and figure out how can I be more like Mike? I gotta figure out every move, every habit, Everything that Mike is doing, I gotta be, I gotta do exactly what he's doing. And Kobe said this because he viewed Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time. And if I wanna be great at this game, I gotta be like him. I gotta imitate him. And I have to say, 
if there was ever a player in basketball history who came close to being like Mike, Kobe was dangerously close. He looked just like Mike at times. Sometimes you would squint and be like, is that Mike? Nah, ain't quite Mike. It's Kobe. So in his pursuit of trying to be like Mike, he became a historical basketball player. He became great at the game. And I have to say that the reason why Kobe thought Mike was the GOAT was because he didn't watch LeBron James and he ain't came out just yet. So he couldn't watch film of LeBron and be like LeBron. You know what I'm saying? I'm just, I'm just gonna put that out there, right? But Mike is still good, Mike is still good. You know, when I think about the Apostle Paul, I think that Paul does very similar things with Jesus, right? When Paul looks at our Savior, he looks at someone who figured out how to live a fulfilled and whole life. He looks at Jesus and says, you know what? He has really figured out this life thing. That is someone who has mastered what it means to be a human being. And Paul says that if I want to be like him, if I want to be like the goat of all goats, the greatest human being alive, then I have to imitate him. And this is what Paul tries to do. This is what Paul pursues in his life. And as Paul is pursuing becoming like Christ, growing in Christ, the Spirit transforms him into a devoted follower of Jesus, and Paul becomes a role model. He becomes an example for many others in their pursuit of being like Jesus. And Paul becomes very explicit here in our text this morning. He says, I want you to imitate me. Imitate what you see me doing as you try to become more like Christ. And this, is a, this is a theme that he emphasizes throughout the entire book. We see earlier in the book where Paul says, I want you to share in my own suffering as I share in Christ's own suffering. We even see earlier in chapter 3 how Paul says, I'm going to write off all of my achievements just for the surpassing knowledge just to know Christ, right? And he does that to model this is how you embrace a Christ-like mindset. Now, here's what I find interesting. One can say, you know, Paul, that's a little arrogant of you to say. Imitate you, but you're just a dude. Ain't supposed to be imitating the dude, that dude, Jesus Christ. Why should we be imitating you and not Jesus? That's a really, really interesting question, right? And I can see how one can surmise that's an arrogant thing of Paul to say. But, 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 but. If we read Paul in the context of the ancient world he's living in, it'll actually make a little bit more sense. So in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman and Jewish world, right, teachers expected their students not only to receive their instruction, but to also follow their example, right? This kind, this form of teaching reflected that wisdom had to be embodied and not just listened to. It is, it, it is a case, in fact, that philosophers of the time really believed that the only, way, the only way that one could truly achieve right living was by following the patterns of a good example. I want you to check out this slide here. There it is. 
So this is an excerpt from a letter written by a Roman philosopher, Seneca. And Seneca was actually a contemporary of Paul. Check, check out what Seneca says here. He says, let us choose people who teach us by their lives, people who teach us what we ought to do, and then prove it by their practice, who show us what we should avoid, and then are never caught doing that which they have ordered us to avoid. Choose as a God guide one whom you will admire more when you see when you have seen them act than when you have heard them speak. Right? So we see again, as we see throughout this letter, Paul is taking his cues from the from, from his context, from the culture around him. And I will say that I think some of this does translate over into our world. I was thinking about this this week. When I first started preaching here, Scott Jones, our lead pastor, he would make me write out sermons and send it to him. I would send him my sermons, and we would have what I call jam sessions, right? And Scott would give me pointers. He'd give me feedback. He'd give me technical things to say. You know what I love? I loved it when Scott would say something like that. He said, Jalen, you know, I see what you're saying there. I think you want to say something like this. Oh, he's like, Jalen, you know, I like this point, but take it further by saying this. My eyes perked up. You know why? I would click my pen and write down exactly what he said. And you know what I would do? I would say it up here. And I would pass off what Scott said as Jalen's words. Right? He made me sound a lot smarter than I actually was at the time. Right? Now, that relationship to this day we would call it like a mentor relationship. But in essence, Scott was saying, hey, man, young dude, you're in seminary. You want to be a preacher? I got, I got years in the game. I've logged many hours. Listen to me. Follow my lead. Let me teach you a little something, right? In essence, he's saying, imitate me, which I did. Now, if Scott would have said, hey, I want you to imitate me, I'd be like, oh, imitate you? Who do you think you are, Tim Keller? T.D. Jakes? Imitate you? What are you what's, what's, what, arrogance? No. You crazy? No, I'm not going to imitate you. But in essence, that's what he's getting at. That's what Paul's getting at. So this, 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 this art of imitation is not foreign even to our modern ears because what Paul is saying, you need an example. And, I, and one commentator put it really, really well. He said that those first-generation believers did not have a New Testament. They didn't have a church history. They barely really, they didn't really have local pastors, right? So all they really had were those around them and Paul to look to, right? So one of the primary ways that early church grew was by looking to those who were living their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this is why Paul says, imitate me, look to me. Right? Not because I want you, not because I want to be some kind of cult leader, but because I know you need a role. I know you need an image of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, I, and as you imitate me and look to me, I'm pointing you right to him. Pointing you right to him. And I love how he says in the second part of verse one, of verse, of verse 17. I'm pull it up here. He says. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So don't just look at me, but look at other people too. This reminded me of another story. 
So last fall, Sarah McLean and I led a discipleship course together. It was spiritual discipleship. And the, 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 the main premise of this course was how can we stay connected to Jesus? And one of the ways we can stay connected to Jesus was through, was through doing spiritual practices, prayer, fasting, devotional life, etc. So one practice we did was fasting. We fasted one week. And Sarah was like crazy about fasting. She went, she was just, she was preaching to us every single week. Fasting is really, really great. And I was like, great. <laughs> right? So we got to the week where we fasted, and Sarah and I met about twice a week. So we met on the day of our fast. And Sarah was like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to fast once a week. I'm going to fast regularly. Like, like literally. Because this is so good for me. I'm connected to Jesus. I'm going to fast regularly. And outwardly, I'm like, great. Good for you. Inwardly, I'm like, woo, girl. This is a lot. Really, though? Once, like, I, this is like a one and done for me. I'm going to eat three square meals for the rest of my life. It's about fasting once a week? Are you serious? And as I'm, like, responding in really on, on the inside, the spirit nudges me a little bit. He said, hey, Jalen, you should do that. And I'm like, come again? You should do what your sister is doing. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like having a temper tantrum on it. I'm like, God, I don't want to be like my sister. This is so unfair. Why are you doing this to me? Ah. But he said, Jalen, I want you to hear me, hear me, hear me out. He said, this last year, you have run yourself into the ground. You have burnt yourself out, and you're on a path to where you're not going to have anything left to give if you keep going the way you're going. You're not relying on me. You're not trusting me. You're relying on your own strength, your own power, your own knowledge. You're chasing after your dreams, your hopes, and I'm not involved. And this is not the way you're called to live your life. So if you fast, son, right, it's going to teach you, I'm going to teach you, that you can rely on me for anything. Because when you get hungry, you're going to turn to me. You're going to pray to me. You're going to read my word, and I'm going to show you that I can fill you up. I'm going to show you that I can sustain you. And this example, this model, is going to show you in your everyday life, when you feel weak, what do you do? You pray. When you feel weak, what do you do? You, you turn to me. And fasting is going to teach you this. I'm like, oh, God, why? Like a little child. Right? But God used that moment to say, hey, your sister is doing something that you should imitate. Your sister is doing something that you should follow. And this is how we grow in our faith, by imitating each other. This is why Scott had us go through that exercise a couple of weeks ago. Like, who is imitatable in your life? Right? Because God, when you're in relationship, when you're in community with other believers, he's going to tap you on your shoulder and say, hey, you see your sister over there? Do what she's doing. You see your brother over there? You should do what she's doing. You're struggling in this area. Watch them. Look to them. Talk to them. Imitate them. Right? And then as you grow in your faith, 
And as you're living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, God's going to tap someone and say, hey, you see that guy? You see that girl? Look to them. Look at them. This is how we grow. This is how we mature spiritually. This is the family of God. Right? This is how we become the family of God. For God told me very clearly, look to your sister. Do what she's doing and watch me grow you. And he did. It was one of the most fruitful seasons of my life. He did, right? So I was just talking about you. You missed the whole thing. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't anything bad. It wasn't anything bad. <laughs> it wasn't anything bad. This is the family of God. So Paul is encouraging the Philippian church and, and vicariously encouraging us that if we want to continue to grow, it comes through imitation. It comes through looking to those around us, right? And it takes a little discernment, too, right? So as we're in our lives and we're struggling through many, many things, a prayer that we can pray, say, hey, hey God, I'm struggling with, with, with whatever it may be. Bring someone into my life who I can imitate. Bring someone into my life who can show me a way forward. Because I can't do this by myself. And that's when God's like, I got some children. You got some siblings that's doing some good stuff. You got some siblings that I've been walking with for a little bit. They've been growing and maturing. I got some people for you. Thank you for coming to me. Right? And God will send people into our lives who we can imitate, who we can follow, whose lead and example we can follow. This is what it means to be the family of God. So after Paul urges them to continue to grow, right, to continue to mature in their faith, he then moves into a warning, right? Verse 18, for, whom, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, right? So there are people who walk with God daily who we should follow, and there are other people who don't walk with God who we should not follow. And Paul refers to these people as enemies of the cross, folks who deny God's self-revelation in the person of Jesus Christ, folks who put more stock in their flesh, in their own hopes, in their own dreams, who put more stock in their own strength than they put in God's strength, right? Don't follow those people. So in contrast, Paul is saying, we press toward the mark of the heavenly call and they press toward the mark of disaster. They're on a path to destruction. And this brings Paul to, to tears. This makes him cry, right? This reality that people are living in life without Christ, without Jesus, is tear-inducing, right? It's like, man, if they only knew what they're missing out on. And if they only knew what this path was, what this path is leading them toward, ah. Oh, it makes me want to cry a little bit right now. This is really, really sad stuff. But I also want to pause here and say this. So Paul's tears are not for himself. And remember, Paul's in jail, right? So if there was ever a reason for him to be crying about his own situation, it would be right now, right? Paul, in his own predicament, could have visceral emotions, visceral reactions, anger, frustration, sadness. And it's, 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 it's possible 
probably more probable that he did have these responses, that he did feel this way. But what Paul teaches us is that when we have those visceral emotions to something going on in our lives, we don't have to stay there. It does not have to end there. Paul shows us and demonstrates to us that God can transform us in spite of what we're going through. God can replace our anger and frustration with peace and joy. He can replace our sorrow with hope, right? But God, God is saying that, that, that Paul is saying that I have lost so much. It has landed me in jail, but he says also I've also gained so much. And don't miss how much we have to gain in spite of how much we have, we've lost, Right? Paul said, there's so much that I've gained by the power of the Spirit that I will not cry for myself anymore. I'm going to cry for those who don't have the Spirit that I have. That's that's what I should be crying for, right? And, and, And here's the thing. When we're going through things and we feel like we're at our wit's end, we feel like, like, like there's just nothing else we can do. Paul demonstrates there's always one more move, and that's trust God. There's always one extra move we have in our back pocket when we feel like we've done everything we can, or so you think you have. Trust God. Trust God. God has your back. God will transform your tears as he does with Paul. And God will give you a divine assignment. He will use you in the midst of to where you have joy. You have peace. You have patience. You have the spirit and power of the living God driving you, empowering you every single day of your life in spite of what you might be going through. Trust that God will take care of you because he will. He absolutely will. He promised that he would. And that's what Paul demonstrates. Paul says, you don't have to stay in that place. Your initial posture does not have to be your final posture. Right? Your circumstances does not get the final word in your life. You don't get the final word. Trust God. When you think you've done everything you can, or so you think you have, Trust God. He continues to warn, and he says, these enemies of the cross, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. You know, a part of being caught up in in, in our earthly situation is that we can tend to fall in love with instant gratification, right? We can tend to fall in love with the easy solution, the quick solution, the thing that makes us feel good in the moment, right? It's part of just having a carnal flesh, right? The flesh wants what makes it feel good in the moment, right? While the spirit on the inside of us says, no, 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 it's actually a long term. There's a long game. 
This might make you feel good now, but it's going to hurt you in the long run, right? Actually, your flesh will suffer more in the long run by this instant gratification. And Paul is saying that folks who worship their bellies, right, who worship the, th who, who, who worship the thing that, that gets full and is hungry two hours later. Is, is that my personal testimony? I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that, that might just be me, right? Worshiping the thing that gets full and then a couple of hours later you're hungry. That, that you're always trying to get full over and over and over and over and over again. Whereas the Spirit of God says, I am the thing that will sustain you always. I am the thing that, 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 that will give you everlasting peace, everlasting joy, right? I am the thing that will keep you always, right? So don't fall for the okie dog. And, and, and I, I'm not saying this as someone who doesn't struggle. Someone who doesn't fall for the okie dog from time to time myself. Because instant gratification, when you, when you see it, say, man, that, that, that will solve it. That will make me feel good right now. It's, it's hard to pass that up. But that's why the spirit of God, that's why feeding that spirit so that it can empower us to say no is very, very important. Don't fall for instant gratification. Don't fall for, don't fall for these earthly things and these earthly situations that will only fill us up for a little while. Choose the long game. Choose the long run. Because that will fill us up. It will sustain us through it all. And not just for this one little thing. This is why Paul said they're in this destruction. Because they're more focused on what they can have now than what they can have in the long run. But Paul reminds us, that's them. But as for you, child of God, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we go to verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 and 19, it's coming. It's coming. Verse 18 and 19, go to the next verse. Oh, 20 and 21. Oh, my, my B, my B. My B, my B. Keep going now. Keep, keep going down. Keep going. Going downtown. Go down one more. There it is. My fault. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. So remember, child of God. Remember who you are. And see, I like this, right? So the question becomes, why does Paul use this language of citizenship? Fascinating question. Right? So in the Roman Empire, citizenship defined your ethical values, and it also defined your allegiances. So if I'm a citizen of Rome, that means that how I behave is going to be according to the culture of this, of this place. And it also controls my allegiance. If I'm a citizen of Rome, my allegiance ultimately lies with Caesar. But Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. It's not who you are, right? It's not who you are. Remember who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. And for Paul, I like this because he says, heaven is not simply a place that we go to when we die, right? But we're actually citizens of heaven right now. We are actually uh, 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 vessels of how heaven breaks into the earth, right? 
So, so Paul is in essence is saying to these, to these, to these Christians that you might live in the Roman Empire, but you actually are resident aliens. You don't belong to this place, right? This is not where you. This is not where you belong. You're not a citizen of this place. So we might live in America. Our citizenship might be here or any other place for that matter, but we're resident aliens. We don't belong in this place. We are in the world, but not of the world, right? Our heavenly citizenship starts now. The, 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 the values of heaven, the ethics of heavens informs who we are right now, right? Our allegiance to Christ and to only Christ starts right now, and this sets the foundation of how we live in our everyday lives right now, right? So we are citizens of heaven right now. But even though we're presently citizens of heaven, our heavenly citizenship does have a future orientation, right? So while we're living here in our temporary home, we eagerly await a time where we will, where our bodies will be transformed, where our lives will be transformed. And Paul says we await a savior. This is another cue, right? Because Paul doesn't use the word savior that much in his writing, right? But he uses it here. Why is that? Because the title savior in that context was only given to emperors and rulers of the time, right? So Paul is saying, no, nope, no, nope. remember, our Savior is different than their Savior, right? Our Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be the one that will deliver us ultimately. Jesus is going to be the one that will save our lives right now and in eternity. And when Jesus comes back, so, so he says we await a Savior. So he's pointing to the future and final resurrection. When Jesus comes back, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. My God, my God. Right? So when he says lowly bodies, these bodies that are in a fallen state, right, these, these bodies that are subject to suffering, weakness, disease, uh, subject to just so many broken things. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to refashion our bodies and make it like his own, right? Jesus is going to come back. He's going to take our lowly body. He's not going to discard them. He's going to transform them. He's going to take us from our temporary home and, and bring us to into our eternal home, Right? And this is exciting news because it lets us know fundamentally that everything we go through right now is temporary. It's temporary. It is not everlasting. It does not define you. Our citizenship in heaven does it's in heaven supersedes everything that we might go through. So, so the, the medical diagnosis does not define you. The broken relationship does not define you. The, the list of regrets, the broken dreams, none of that defines you. The only thing or the only person that can define you is the one who created you in his image in heaven. So God created you in his image in heaven before you were born. So he is the only one who has the authority to say who you are and how you should live. 
No one else has that authority. Nothing in your life has that authority. Everything has to bow down to the one that created you. Everything has to bow down to that. Which is why God, which is why, which is why Paul says, we await a savior, right? Who is going to take these broken and fleshly bodies and transform it into a glorious body. It's temporary. And one thing I would say, this series has just blessed me so much. It has really changed the way in which I think about my life, right? So when I'm going through just everyday stuff, a stuff that just happens because of life, God always reminds me because of Philippians now, because of the series we've been going through. He always reminds me, Jayla, I want you to look at, I want you to look at what you're going through through an eternal lens. Look at what you're going through through the lens of heaven, right? Heaven says this is only a small moment, small circumstance in your life that pales in comparison to what you got coming for you in eternity, right? When you look at it through the lens of heaven, through the guise of heaven, God says, this is nothing for me. Trust me. Give it over to me. I got it. I got you. Because heaven is much more powerful and is much more stable than earth will ever be. So give it over to me. I got you. I got you. Going to the next verse. We're in chapter 4 now. Paul then goes on to say, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I practice those two names all, all week. I think, I, did I get it right, Scott? I got it right. Yeah, Scott said I got it right. Great. Cool. All right. So verse 1, Paul does his thing. He's, talk, he, he, he's a pastor, right? My brothers and sisters, who I love and long for, my joy and crown, you who I've poured into, you who I have just truly, truly, truly given my life for your maturity, for your spiritual maturity, I want you to stand firm. I want you to stand firm, right? Paul is not naive. We're going to see this even more in, in a couple of minutes. He's not naive enough to think that life isn't hard. Life is hard. Stuff happens. But when stuff happens, as it has happened to me, Paul would say, stand firm. Stand firm. Stay the course. Keep pressing toward the mark, right? Because that prize is worth way more than the prize that you can get with your flesh. In fact, Paul said there is no prize. It's destruction. It leads to destruction. So I implore you, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And he gets into this interesting, I'm going to call it church politics. Kind of fascinating. He says, I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Keep going, Pam. Keep going. Keep going in verse, go verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Fascinating. So biblical scholars 
have highly contested debates about what Paul is getting at here. So I tried my best to just sort of, come, sort of take tr like general truths from everybody and just try to explain this out. So let's see what happens. So these two women, most, most scholars agree, are, 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 are church leaders, right? They're very influential in the early church, in that, in, the, in that specific church context, right? And what happens is these two sisters get in, they get in an argument, right? These two sisters apparently disagree about what should be the way forward for this church, right? They disagree. Some say they disagree with Paul, and they have their own ideas separately about how the church should go forward. But generally, they're not in agreement as leaders about how the church should move forward as they spread the gospel and as they live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. They disagree. So Paul says this. He said, look, these women are my sisters in Christ. They're very important to this church, right? So I'm not going to come down on them too harshly. I simply want them to be of the same mind. I want them to be of the same spirit, as he encourages the church earlier on, right? And what Paul is calling for here is reconciliation, right? I want there to be a reconciled relationship because your voices and your lives are important for this church. They're important for this church. So if you two can come back together and be back in right relationship with each other, it would be for the good of the entire church, right? I like this because, like again, Paul is not naive. He says there will be conflict, right? Broken people, conflict will arise. But just because there will be inevitable conflict does not mean there cannot be reconciliation. Does not mean there cannot be restoration of relationships. And that's what Paul's advocating. He says, if the two of you women can come together and both submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, and both of you check your equals at the door, it will then lead you back into relationship and helping lead this church forward in Philippi. And I think that's what Paul's getting at there. There's, there's so much there that we could have gotten into, but I think I, I don't, I, that, that'd be like a whole other sermon. So I, I, I didn't think that, I, I didn't want to put you through that. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's getting at there. So church, in closing, coming out of that conflict, and the worship team can come back up now. I want to leave you with this. Imitation is not arrogance. Imitation is a way for us to all grow in Christ, for us to all mature in Christ. So I want us all to be very, very intentional in our prayers and say, Lord, as I grow in my faith, as I grow in my faith with my family and children and in marriage, who are you calling me to look to? Who are some examples around me that I can imitate, that I can, that I can view as role models? This is very, very important, right? And always remember, that even in the midst of, as we're imitating one another, growing in Christ, we have to always remember that in the midst of every situation in our lives, God is able to transform us, 
He's able to keep us. He's able to sustain us through it all. Just like Paul, our initial posture does not have to be the determining factor for our final posture. Allow God to transform your tears, transform your frustration and anger and sadness and sorrow into hope, joy, peace, and love. This is what God can do. We're going to go now into our time of communion.